Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression, the weekly podcast with me, Jerry Baker, the Wall Street Journal editorial page. This week with events in Europe dominating the headlines and dominating everybody's thoughts, I'm privileged to be joined by uh, an old friend, Neil Ferguson, a very distinguished historian, currently the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and Managing Director of Greenmantle, an investment advisory firm. But of course, he's been a professor at Oxford, Harvard and elsewhere. And I think, Neil, also, if I may say so, you're very much involved in the founding of this uh, new university committed to principles of free speech, University of Austin. That's right, isn't it? Yes, I'm, I'm one of the founding trustees of the University of Austin. So I wear multiple hats these days. Well, thank you very much uh, indeed for joining us. We're recording this, uh, I should say, given that events are moving so fast that by the time some people hear this, things may have moved on a little bit. But we're recording and we're going to try and keep to the larger issues, to the general principles of what's going on right now in Europe. We're recording this on uh, Monday morning, Monday the 28th of February. So Neil, let me start with you. You're a historian, as I say, a very eminent historian. You've written uh, widely about global history, about economic and financial history, but of course, geopolitical history. And it's been your job for getting on for 40 years to analyse and interpret historic events and to sort of sift events, the really significant events from the chaff, if you like, of the run of the mill events. As we watch what's going on right now, we're on day five of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How do you estimate this episode in terms of its historic significance at this point? I wrote a book called The War of the World back in 2006. And one of its central themes was why that particular part of Europe has been so violent historically. An enormous proportion of the organized lethal violence of the 20th century happens in and around Ukraine. There's this kind of deadly triangle between the Baltic, the Black Sea, and the Balkans, where just a terrific amount of, of conflict has taken place. It's therefore, from a historian's point of view, not terribly surprising that war is raging uh, in Kharkiv, in Kyiv, these places have a tremendously bloody history. So if one asks the question, why did this happen? The obvious answer is that Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, resolved to bring Ukraine back under Russia's control, direct or indirect. We can't know whether he aspired to annex Ukraine or simply to restore it to its vassal state. Uh, of, of phony independence. So that's the obvious starting point for all of this. He published an article last July on the historic unity of the Russian and Ukrainian peoples, a long pseudo-historical article. As soon as I read it, I knew he intended invasion. I spent months trying to persuade people this was happening. Uh, back in September, I was in Kiev and came away very concerned about the isolation of Ukraine, the lack of any real commitment from the US or, or from Europe. And that's really the second point I'd make. There were opportunities to strengthen Ukraine's defenses. Uh, one could have made it clear that NATO membership was conceivable, EU membership was attainable. Instead, the West essentially said, how about never? 
Uh, and that left Ukraine in a very vulnerable position because a clear majority of Ukrainians want to join the EU and want to be in, in NATO. From Putin's point of view, it's long been the case that he has seen EU membership or NATO membership as unacceptable. That's why, of course, Russia intervened in 2014. We did not do enough to deter Putin. Fatally, the Biden administration decided the threat of sanctions, such sanctions as you have never seen, the worst sanctions would work as a deterrent. It wholly failed, predictably failed to deter Putin. And that is why he felt that he could go ahead. The third point I'll make is that he's now being hit extremely hard by economic sanctions, much harder than, for example, in 2014. But that is not going to alter the course of this war, which Russia is in a position to win in a matter of weeks, I would say, because of its superior aerial and armored capabilities. And it's going to be ugly. It's already ugly. They're already dropping uh, bombs, uh, cluster bombs on Kharkiv. And so we're going to have the strange disconnect between our sympathies, which are engaged with the Ukrainian people, and particularly their president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, and the reality that we cannot do enough to prevent their defeat. We have left it too late. And that is a tragic, tragic denouement. Let's just talk briefly about uh, your point. And I know you've written uh, about this, this just this week about the Biden administration's culpability in this. And perhaps, you know, we can talk about Europe's obviously too. So you think, and again, from your own conversations, and you said you were there uh, back last fall, you think that the, well, what do you think? I mean, an, an actual open invitation, an invitation to Ukraine then to, uh, instead of this sort of maybe sometime never a view of NATO membership for Ukraine that the West has had, a much more um, enthusiastic um, invitation, if you like, for Ukraine to join NATO, or at least perhaps the EU, a much more, a, a much more aggressive tilt uh, or, or assistance for Ukraine to tilt towards the West. Is that what we should have done? You think that would have, that would have been a more effective deterrent for um, Vladimir Putin? If you took the decision, which I think we did take, not to really seriously consider Ukraine for NATO membership and not seriously to consider them for EU membership, then the corollary, in my view, was that you had to step up assistance to the Ukrainian military so that they could credibly defend themselves. It's a little bit like Israel, which is not a member of, of NATO, much less the EU, but which we've consistently ensured can defend itself against uh, hostile neighbors. Unfortunately, last year, the Biden administration slowed down arms deliveries uh, to Ukraine, took off the sanctions on the companies building the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is designed by Russia to bypass Ukraine in natural gas shipments to Europe, and basically signaled that they would not really put up much of a fight on Ukraine's behalf. That was a green light to Putin. And I could see that in September. So I think the great mistake was not to arm Ukraine sufficiently that it could defend itself. I wonder if it's now too late. I'm glad, very glad to see the change of sentiment in Europe that there has been uh, in the last seven days. It is remarkable that Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, has junked decades of Ostpolitik has junked Germany's decades-long underfunding of its defense budget, has essentially doubled the defense budget. It is remarkable that the European Union is sending military hardware, including, it seems, uh, fighter jets to Ukraine. This is all good. I wish we could see the same level of commitment coming from Washington. But I 
deeply fear that it's too late and that we cannot sufficiently swiftly arm the Ukrainians to prevent their being crushed by the kind of brutal Russian tactics that we've seen in Syria, for example, where civilian casualties will be high and the destruction of urban areas will be enormous. This is a, a frightful prospect, but one must be realistic. There's no amount of heroism, no, many, no, no number of volunteers with Kalashnikovs that can really withstand a brutal Russian bombardment. And that is, I fear, what, what is lying in store for Ukrainians is already unfolding in Kharkiv. When you say we, uh, we've acted too late um, and that you think you expect Russia eventually to prevail um, militarily, given its obvious superiority, despite the, you know, the rushed assistance that we are now seeing um, from the West. When, when you say Russia will prevail, what does that mean exactly? What, what do you think... What do they achieve here? Because one of the things I'm having a hard time understanding is what exactly it is that Putin expects. I mean, does he really think he's going to decapitate the government, presumably get rid of Zelensky and his government and replace him with some sort of a, you know, a puppet, pro-Moscow puppet, the sort of thing that the Soviets obviously did in the Cold War? But the big difference is that, well, first of all, uh, one of the differences is that the, the Ukrainians have, are going to have lost a lot of people in this fight and the Russians are going to have lost a lot of people too. And it's only hardened, hasn't it, their resistance to um, being part of the Russian sphere, which if that is his objective, even if he's able to install a government, he's going to face years and years and years of, at minimum, political resistance and almost certainly military and military insurgency again backed by the West. Where, where, do you, where do you think this goes? Well, he clearly miscalculated in expecting the Ukrainians to fold. And it's remarkable that he can have been so poorly informed, but absolute power doesn't just corrupt absolutely. It also cuts you off from reality. I go to Ukraine every year. I've been doing that for 10 years. I've always taken a keen interest in, in the country precisely because of its history as a kind of, as a war zone. And to my mind, it's been clear for a while that Ukrainians are deeply committed to a new life outside Moscow's sphere of influence, a life that is westward in its orientation. It's a struggle uh, because it's, it's been roughly two or three centuries during which Ukraine has been under some form or other of Russian empire with only brief periods of independence, such as after 1917. But they are committed to this. Uh, there is a fighting spirit there. It was something that I saw very clearly in my visits to T Kiev and I'm I'm just saddened that we've we've not given them the means to to withstand what is going to be a fearsome assault now we must be realistic it's clear that the russians have the firepower to win this even if it involves high levels of destruction and civilian casualties we know from their performance in syria that they are regardless indifferent to uh, civilian casualties. The goal of getting rid of uh, Zelensky uh, is still, I think, Putin's goal, even though it's turned out to be harder than he expected. He now can't really back down. When you say that you're going to achieve regime change, and you even draft the editorials that will be published when you achieve it, one of which was inadvertently published yesterday and then hastily withdrawn, but we saw it, uh, it's very hard to say uh, actually come to think of it, we'll negotiate with you. So I think Putin has to f uh, press on until he has overthrown uh, the democratically elected government of uh, President Zelensky and, and he'll install some client in his place 
Uh, perhaps that means there'll be two governments of Ukraine, one in Poland or in Western Ukraine, if the Russians decide just to take control of half the country and one in Kiev. But that seems like the goal that Putin has set himself. And I don't see many ways that that can be prevented. As I said, we've left it too late fully and effectively to arm the Ukrainians. The thing that could change the game is if the economic shock to Russia is such, is so great, and if popular disillusionment with Putin is so great that his position in power crumbles. We can't rule that out. In, in Russian history, losing a war or even having a war go badly is quite bad for your, your political health as a leader. It's not just Tsar Nicholas II who found this out. So did Nicholas I who lost or bungled badly the Crimean War. I do think we now have to attach some probability to internal crisis in Russia because economically, this is disastrous. We can see the ruble has fallen off a cliff this morning. So have all Russian assets. The economic sanctions are hitting Russia harder than I think Putin expected because the Europeans are being much tougher than he expected, particularly when it comes to issues like, like SWIFT, excluding Russia from the international payments and messaging system. So we have to watch carefully to see if Putin can get to victory before his own position begins to fray. That, I think, is the key question. The other thing that I think is interesting here is there is now open discussion of, of the use of nuclear weapons. Putin raised this. Uh, it seems that he wants to imply he's open to using uh, tactical nuclear weapons. I find this an implausible threat, but I think it's intended to intimidate NATO countries and deter them from imposing a no-fly zone which has been discussed on the Western side. And the fly zone would be a major problem for Putin because ultimately his strategy depends on dominance of the skies. Uh, so I think that's why he started to rattle his nuclear saber. Uh, all of this, of course, is, is deeply alarming to all those people in markets who thought this wasn't going to happen because this kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. I still don't know how anybody could have believed that, given that Putin had fought wars in Georgia in 2008, in Ukraine in 2014, in Syria in 2015. And yet there was a great deal of, of denial until, until actually this war began. I wrote in January the 2nd, uh, on January the 2nd, war is coming, war is coming to Ukraine. Uh, but it was, it was remarkable to me how few people saw that until it was too late. How great is the risk now of escalation? As you say, um, it seems to be it's taking, he's miscalculated in many ways, but he still obviously has, as you said, the military superiority. There's some evidence, it seems, we're hearing and seeing this morning that um, he stepped up the assault in Kharkiv in the east of Ukraine, northeast of Ukraine, um, in targeting, either targeting or certainly, if not directly targeting, then certainly indiscriminately bombing and hitting a lot of civilian targets. Um, we we've seen that's kind of the way the Russians have operated in the past, particularly in Syria and places like Chechnya too. So the escalation there looks as though it may already be in place. You've said uh, you mentioned obviously the damage to the Russian economy uh, that's likely to be done. Putin has in the past described. Uh, financial warfare as a declaration of actual warfare and has hinted that he would respond in kind. And if we are in for a reasonably lengthy period where 
European nations, as you say, including the EU itself as an institution, is funneling arms to the resistance in Ukraine against um, against Putin. Then, and, and again, given as you say, the others also say that the, the risk for Putin is that um, is the is the risk for all uh, dictators, which is the you know, which is the gibbet that awaits him if things go badly wrong. It seemed to me that we are looking at the possibility here of quite serious risk of escalation, and that this is a very very unstable situation. Well, I don't think it's in Putin's interest uh, to escalate the war beyond the war he's currently prosecuting against Ukraine. In that war, he has the upper hand. If it escalates uh, and other countries become involved in any way beyond supplying the Ukrainians, I think that has to be worse for him. Now, it's possible that the war has already spilled over in cyberspace, though actually the, the, the level of cyber attack has been lower than I foresaw. And if the Russians intended to shut down Ukraine and cut it off from the world, they've wholly failed to do that, allowing Zelensky to win, clearly win, the war for hearts and minds on social and other media. We don't really know the scale of the cyber war that's being waged. We didn't know before this because companies tend to be quiet about when they've been successfully attacked. But my guess is that the area where escalation is most likely is in fact in cyberspace. Now that the Russians find themselves financially cut off, find that their, their central bank actually has lost control of more than half its reserves, uh, they have less to lose. If they want to escalate the cyber war against Western financial institutions, I would expect them to do that. But escalation in the sense of other countries getting involved seems highly unlikely. Aside from supplying the Ukrainians with armaments, the main event will be bolstering the defenses of the Baltic states, uh, Poland, and other East European NATO members to make sure that if Putin's successful in Ukraine, he doesn't start asking what else is on the menu. I think that's the way this is going to play out. The, the conventional war will end relatively swiftly with a brutal Russian victory, leaving some cities, certainly Kharkiv, possibly Kiev, looking like Aleppo or Grozny did, followed then by an insurgency. A friend of mine, a Ukrainian friend of mine, said to me last week just before the fighting began, it will be like the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. That is to say, there will be a, a, an effective resistance by Ukrainians against a Russian occupation, a Russian presence. And so, in a strange kind of way, the Iraq war will repeat, repeat itself with entirely different actors. Uh, I, I take seriously that threat. Again, historically, Ukraine has a partisan tradition. It's been the scene of, of brutal conflict between multiple groups in the course of the last 100 years. So nothing would surprise me less than a sustained insurgency against Russian dominance. But can Putin live with that? I guess conceivably. It, it's going to be ugly. The longer it lasts, of course, the longer the sanctions remain in place. And I think, I think Jerry, the, the key thing to remember about sanctions, we've been using these, these techniques for a long time in warfare. They tend not to really influence the outcome in the battlefield unless they succeed actually in cutting 
a country off from fuel and, and ammunition. That's not happening with Russia for obvious reasons. But what they, they often do is they just kind of get stuck. Think of sanctions on Cuba, sanctions on Iran. And I could imagine a situation in which Putin gains control of, of Ukraine, finds, however, that it's, it's control that's challenged constantly uh, by an insurgency and, and finds that he's permanently excluded, not just from financial markets, but gradually, and this is the key word, gradually, Europe is going to orient itself away from Russian natural gas and oil. It can't do it overnight, but it clearly is going to do it over the coming years. That is, I think, one of the most significant shifts that this war is going to, going to cause. We've got to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll have more with Neil Ferguson of the Hoover Institution, talking about Russia, the state of the world, America, and indeed broader strategic questions that arise from this crisis. Stay with us. Rapid expansion. We're ready. Worker shortage. We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. We're back with Neil Ferguson, the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and Managing Director of Greenmantle Investment Advisors on the crisis in Ukraine. How do you view the response of the West? We've talked about it, obviously, in terms of um, particular military assistance or even political assistance, as it were, being too little too late. But now the West has finally been roused into action, particularly the Europeans. As you say, maybe the US, I think the Euro- Europeans are, the US, once again, seems to be leading from behind here, as in the famous words of Barack Obama. But the, the Europeans really have come together in a way. You know, you and I grew up in Britain, both moved away, but both, I think, have had a fairly sceptical view about the uh, geopolitical significance of Europe as an institution of the European Union. We have seen this dramatic change, at least rhetorical change so far from Germany with Olaf Scholz making that speech at the weekend, abandoning Ostpolitik, committing to dramatically increased defense spending. We've seen even countries like Sweden and Finland, historically neutral countries, committing military assistance to Ukraine and talking openly now about possible NATO NATO membership. We've seen the European Union acting in with a rare degree of unity in concert. Is this significant. I think perhaps the question at the back of my mind is, it's impressive and stirring and inspiring in many ways, but is it going to last if Putin is somehow able to achieve some sort of a face-saving victory in which he's able to get broadly what he wants in Ukraine? Is this change going to endure? Are we really going to see a much more geopolitically prepared, sophisticated, active Europe, or are we going to sort of settle back to the pattern of the last 30, 40 years? Jerry, I think there's been a paradigm shift. I don't think that's uh, an inappropriate uh, term to use. You and I are about the same age, late 50s, and uh, for most of our lifetimes, there were, uh, there were certain uh, truths that seemed unalterable. One was the idea, Ostpolitik, that, uh, that Germany, through economic integration with Russia, could somehow avoid uh, a repeat of the conflicts of the past. Ostpolitik is dead. It's dead. Olaf Scholz declared it dead at the weekend. Uh, and there has been an absolute sea change in German sentiment, particularly within the political elite. I'm not sure this would have happened if Angela Merkel was still chancellor. Uh, I can't imagine her giving a speech like that. Uh, but Scholz has shown himself ready to acknowledge that uh, half a century uh, of German strategy is over. The second thing that used to be a kind of permanent truth was that the Europeans would always underpay their share of NATO's combined defense budgets. And 
Germany has been doing this for so long, I don't think anyone can remember a time when it wasn't an issue. It was an issue in the 1960s when we were kids. But now, almost overnight, in response to Russia's aggression against Ukraine, the Germans are willing to go up to 2% of GDP from 1.1%, near doubling of their defense budget. By the time that's carried through, their defense budget in dollar terms would be greater than Russia's. This is a huge, huge shift. And I think it's fascinating to reflect on why it's happening now and not, for example, in 2014 when Putin annexed Crimea and took at least informal control over Donetsk and Luhansk. And the only answer I can come up with is that the scale of that military operation was sufficiently small and the mentality of the German government still sufficiently committed under Angela Merkel to Ostpolitik, that he got away with it with minimal costs. Whereas this, this is a brazen all-out invasion of all of Ukraine aimed at overthrowing a democratically elected president in defiance of the clear preference of the Ukrainian people. I'll just to give you an example, there was a survey done just before war broke out Three quarters of Ukrainians in the poll said they wanted to be in the EU and two thirds said they wanted to be in NATO. So this is so obviously and brazenly in defiance of the will of the Ukrainian people. It is so clearly an act of a despotic regime to crush a democracy that even the German political elite, which has been not merely appeasing Russia for years, but has become to some extent corrupted by Russia. I mean, the former chancellor, Gerhard Schröder, is on the board of Rosneft and Gazprom. It's, it's astonishing when you just think about it. But all of this is over. I think it's a huge, huge deal. Whatever happens in the coming days, weeks, and months, NATO will never be the same. The hawks will have the upper hand. And Germany itself will, I think, regard foreign policy in an entirely new way, quite different from that which we've known during our lives. Just briefly, because I, I want to come on to the US and what it means for the US and then a, a larger question about Russia. But do you think, just very briefly, do you think that then the EU, which has always subordinated any sort of geopolitical or strategic role to NATO, despite repeated efforts by the French, particularly over the years, to give the EU a strategic identity and some degree of what Emmanuel Macron calls st strategic autonomy, do you think this sea change, this paradigm shift, as you call it, in Germany, will give new life to that? Or will this still be fundamentally a North Atlantic and NATO identity rather than a specific EU identity? Well, I never believed in strategic autonomy because I don't think any government, including the French government, has the wherewithal, the political will to replace the United States as the fundamental guarantor of uh, European security. I think it's more likely that this revives, uh, revitalizes uh, NATO, grows NATO. I wouldn't be at all surprised if, as you mentioned, Finland and Sweden ended up joining. And I think there's going to have to be significant expenditure to make the Baltic states and Poland and other frontier countries secure against future Russian aggression. I think the thing that makes strategic autonomy credible is the weakness of the Biden administration, the sense that, in fact, American leadership is lacking. It's also important that Macron was humiliated by Putin. Macron thought that he built some kind of relationship. This is his General de Gaulle alter ego. He thought that he could uh, reason with Putin, and Putin treated him with complete disrespect when he last was 
in Moscow. I think Macron will be likely re-elected as, as French president and in his second term, he is going to ask himself, what does strategic autonomy really mean? And I think the answer will be, it has to combine the strengthening of NATO with some significant enhancement of the European Union's capacity in terms of both foreign policy and, and defense as an insurance policy against a future breakdown of the transatlantic relationship. Because after all, we can't rule out at this point the re-election of Donald Trump in 2024. We just had CPAC, he's the clear front runner. 2024 election is almost certainly going to see a Republican victory. If I were President Macron or Chancellor Schultz, I would have to make strategic autonomy real because there's a distinct possibility that by 2025, you're looking at a, a second Trump term in which everything is on the table, including NATO. Where does this leave US grand strategy then? I mean, for the last decade, at least, it's the driving objective of US global strategy. I think we, everybody agrees has been management of the relationship with China. Now, that's gone through various iterations for a long time. Um, strategic uh, engagement was seen as the way to go. I think the, you know, one of the principal achievements of the Trump era was to end that period and to much more clearly identify China as a, a rival, indeed even an adversary, and to reorient US policy to deal with that. But China's dominated, and that has, to some extent, when I'm the last person to defend the Biden administration, but some maybe some of the failures that you've identified in dealing with Ukraine and Russia have come about in part because the focus has been on China. We all famously remember Barack Obama's put down of Mitt Romney in the 2012 presidential debate where he said, you know, when Romney was going on about the threat from Russia and Obama just dismissively said, you know, the 1980s called they want their foreign policy back. This is a new century and the new century was defined by China. But it's clear now, and everything you've just said about Europe and the reawakening of a kind of European a strategic identity, the reawakening of, of all of us to the threat posed from Russia, that this is going to require at least a split focus, if you like. And we're going to have to, and, and by the way, given that Russia and China seem to have moved together so much uh, in the last few years, perhaps that's the way to deal with it, that there's a kind of a unifying force there in the two countries. But where does it leave? It seems to me to complicate. And you know, the US used to have a doctrine, military doctrine that could fight two major wars at one time. I think that's probably been jettisoned more, I think it, not formally, but I think most people think it's pretty difficult. Where does it leave US? How does this change US grand strategy now? I think the interesting thing about the Trump administration was that it produced a, a very successful transformation of national security strategy. And that was in large measure the achievement of H.R. McMaster, now my colleague at Hoover, and, uh, and Nadia Shadlow, his colleague at the National Security Council. This reorientation was important because it recognized that the United States faced two really major strategic rivals in China and Russia and two rogue regimes, for want of a better term, in, in Iran and North Korea. And if you compare that 2017 document with the previous iteration uh, that Susan Rice did for Barack Obama, it's, it's the difference between night and day. The problem is that I think in the wake of Joe Biden's election, there was a sense that the priority was China. And this reminds me of the debates that went on during World War II about whether it should be Pacific first or Europe first. The reality is that you can't just pick one of the rivals and pretend the other one 
isn't a problem. The most remarkable geopolitical feature of our time is the proximity of Russia and China to one another, the closeness of the relationship between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. I don't think Putin could have done this without a clear reassurance from uh, Xi that he had his back. Although Chinese diplomacy has blown hot and cold, they're talking out of both sides of their mouths, really. In practice, the relationship between China and Russia is strong enough that Russia can do this, can risk war in Ukraine without having to worry about the other end of Eurasia, where historically China has been a rival. I think it won't last. I mean, it's a marriage of convenience. It's a historical anomaly. At some point, the conflicts of interest between Russia and China will manifest themselves, but we can't make that happen. And we are essentially in the situation that we were in in the period after 1949, right through the 1950s, when Russia and China were on the same team. It's just that then Russia was the senior partner. And you'll recall that that was the time of the Korean War, a war that essentially Stalin willed, but Mao had to fight. Now the roles are reversed. It's uh, Russia that plays second fiddle. And I think what's happening is that the Chinese are watching how this plays out and they are taking the following lessons. Number one, the Americans prefer sanctions to actual fighting, and it will be much harder for them to sanction us China because sanctioning China has much more economic implications for the United States than sanctioning Russia. Number two, they'll say, look, these Ukrainians are putting up a pretty stiff fight. No way is that going to happen in Taiwan if we can achieve a successful invasion. And so I think the invasion of Taiwan is on the menu and on the menu for quite soon, not this year, because this year the Chinese have their hands full with the party congress and the extension of Xi Jinping's term in office. But it could be as soon as next year that we're looking at a Taiwan Strait crisis. And that's why this is so bad. I think this is worse than Jimmy Carter in 1979, because I think the combination of the Iranian revolution and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan posed less of a threat ultimately to the United States than this current crisis does. Because not only do we see the possibility of a crisis over Taiwan on the horizon, but we also have a problem in the Middle East where the Biden administration is scrambling to resuscitate the Iran nuclear deal, going against the grain of all that the Trump administration did in the Middle East, and I'm sure making concessions to the Iranians that are extraordinarily significant and likely to alienate both Arabs and Israelis when we find out their true extent. So this is a crisis in three different regions, not just two that the United States confronts. And as you rightly say, Jerry, the United States is not able to wage war in more than one theater at a time. And right now, the Biden administration doesn't really want to wage war at all. That's one of the reasons that I think America's enemies are emboldened, because they know that Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken and Joe Biden himself came into office determined not to get involved in a war, to get out of Afghanistan, even if it meant abject humiliation, and not to get involved in a war over Ukraine, and to use sanctions as an alternative to military action. Back to the broader question of Russia. You've studied many of these countries, all of these major countries and their histories. The history of Russia in many ways over the last 300 years has been, you know, such a challenge for in some ways one of the sort of defining lines of cleavage in, in the Western world. And Peter the Great, you know, decided, wanted to bring Russia into the West and make Russia, to end that ambivalence about Russia as a Eurasia, as an Asian or a European power. Ever since then, you know, in shifting alliances through the 18th and 19th centuries, Russia 
has you know, stepped into Europe and then stepped back from Europe. And then, of course, after 1917, became the focus of this ideological struggle. It's a naive question. But is there any end to this ambivalence about Russia's status and Russia's ambitions and Russia's role in the world? Can Russia become a friendly European power or are we just always, is it always doomed to, to have this streak of, or, you know, ideal, of, of, of strategic autonomy about it that will prevent it from really, really engaging in rapprochement with the West? Russia is both a European and Asian power. And that is not about to change. And Russia is an empire. That is not about to change. Although the Soviet Union fell apart, you have to remember that, that Russia remained vast in geographical uh, and demographic terms, even if in economic terms, it is no longer a power of the first rank. Putin's hero is Peter the Great, not Stalin. I mean, a mistake that commentators often make is to think that this is all about resurrecting the Soviet Union. No, that's not what Putin's about. The whole ethos is not Soviet. The ethos is imperial. And he sees himself as, as the heir of Peter the Great, which means, if you think what Peter the Great did, reasserting uh, Russia as a great power in Europe. What was the scene of Peter the Great's greatest victory in 1709? That's right, Ukraine, Poltava, the defeat of uh, Charles XII to Sweden. That was a signal that Russia was going to replace Sweden as a great power in, in Europe and become the dominant power in Eastern Europe and the Baltic and become a rival in the region of the Ottoman Empire, of the British Empire. I mean, these, these issues, for example, Turkey closing the Black Sea Strait to some Russian warships are old issues. They're 19th century issues as much as they're Cold War issues. And in a sense, we're being taken by Putin back to uh, the 18th or 19th century. The problem is that most commentators only really know about the 20th century and they don't know terribly much about that. So it's always the 1930s or the 1940s all over again. But that's not the way to think about this. It's better to know about the Great Northern War or the Crimean War if you're trying to understand how this plays out right now. And, and that's why I think it's possible that this could go as wrong for Putin as the Crimean War went for Nicholas I. Nicholas I wasn't murdered. He died in his bed of pneumonia. But they said at the time that he didn't really bother with medical treatment because things had gone so horribly wrong in Crimea. I'm kind of hoping, looking at Putin, who hasn't looked that well lately, may even have had COVID or is very fearful of getting it, that maybe history will repeat itself as it did in the 1850s. That's a very good note on which to end, especially watching Putin have those bizarre meetings at a distance of at least 20 metres from everybody around him. He does seem to be particularly concerned about his uh, personal health. So, Neil Ferguson, always a pleasure to uh, listen to you, to get your thoughts. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. It's been a pleasure, Jerry. That's all for this edition of Free Expression from the Wall Street Journal editorial page with me, Jerry Baker. Thank you very much indeed for listening. It was a fascinating conversation with Neil Ferguson, the Millbank Senior Fellow at Hoover Institution and the Managing Director of Green Metal uh, Investment Advisory Firm. Always a pleasure to talk to him. Thanks to all of you for listening. Please be sure to listen again next week for another fascinating conversation about these events that are shaping our world. And please also listen to Potomac Watch, which is now Monday to Friday, the political podcast from the Wall Street Journal editorial page, Monday to Friday. Make sure you listen to that with all the best, most interesting views on the state of politics in America. In the meantime, thanks very much for tuning in. Look forward to talking to you again next week. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. 
Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.